I've got to remember to stay in the right lane on my way down here. Sometimes I venture over into the left lane. It's a blessing to be together with God's people and to worship the King, to worship the King who has come to save us. We celebrate as we gather together on the Lord's Day. We celebrate the fact that God has given us life. He's given us life through the one who is himself life. And that's something to consider uh, this morning is that we're not celebrating uh, something that we have from God, but we are celebrating a person whom we have from God and that we have been given this Christ. You know, Paul describes in a nutshell the end result of our lives as Christians as we will forever be with the Lord. So if that doesn't appeal to you, that's a really good sign that you're not a true Christian, that you're not a true believer. There are all sorts of wonderful things to think about when we think about heaven or the new heaven and the new earth. We we love the idea of not being in hell. That, first off, is great. And then we consider all the joys of heaven, every tear wiped away, no more pain, no more suffering, all of these things. Any human being would enjoy that. But only those whose hearts have been truly changed have any desire to be with Jesus. And so it is that we can know whether or not we have been redeemed, whether or not we have the Lord living in us by whether or not It truly appeals to us that we will be with the Lord. He is our hope. If you would please go with me in your Bibles this morning to Exodus 32, verses 25 to 35. Exodus 32, 25 to 35. I think everyone in here this morning would recognize that this can be such a busy time of year. And that, of course, is a cliche. Uh, We recognize everybody says that, but it really is true. I've talked to a few people this week here from our church and just the different ways in which this time is busy. And it's busy in various ways, different ways, depending on uh, where we are in life. It is a flurry of activities to attend and a flurry of tasks to accomplish Uh, Lots of things to do. We we may think of Christmas as being restful and a break, but then when we really uh, sort of look at the way December rolls out from year to year, we realize that uh, it really doesn't seem that way at all. And I want you to know my simple prayer for each of our families here in our church, my simple prayer is that this will be a time of deep reflection on the gift of Christ, the Christ that I just talked about, the Christ who is himself life, that this will be a time for you even in the midst of busyness. And by the way, the Lord did not intend for us to be idle. Uh, Being busy is not intrinsically bad. In fact, being idle, we recognize, uh, tends to generate worse things than being busy. Uh, But it's in our busyness, it's in our diligence and our activity that we are centered, reflecting on the gift of Christ, this Christ of Christmas. As we talked about last night in family worship, Jesus is the gift. 
Jesus is the treasure. We repeated that over and over last night before we put our kids to bed. Jesus is the gift. Jesus is the treasure. And one of the main reasons we did that is because grandma and grandpa are in town. And uh, this is the first wave of Christmas presents. It has begun. Uh, They're headed back today to North Carolina. But uh, this was the first wave of Christmas presents, and we know how that works out with Grandma and Grandpa, and then we still have Grammy and Pappy coming down the pipeline, and then all the rest. And so there is just such a need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus himself is the treasures. We talked about all the things that we could get for Christmas. I mean, imagine even those big gifts, maybe a new house or a new car, something very expensive, something that uh, you have to finance. Think about all the things that we could have, all these gifts, and they will, in the end, end up in rubble. They'll end up being torn down, being thrown into a landfill. They'll end up as nothing, but Jesus Christ lasts forever. He is the forever treasure. He is the gift, and so I pray that in the midst of all of our doing that we're, that we're going about this Christmas and all the gift giving and the gift receiving, uh, no matter how wonderful the gift might be, that we remember that about the Lord Jesus. And so one big question for us, are you treasuring Christ this Christmas? That is the big question. Are you treasuring Christ this Christmas? And if not, start now. Right? So it's, it's not too late to start thinking in that way. It's not too late. We, we still have time to celebrate this Advent season worshipfully before the Lord. As I said last time, next week, on the Sunday before Christmas and at the Christmas Eve service, we will spend our time looking at John chapter 1, verse 14. That iconic verse beginning with these words. This is probably a verse that you're familiar with. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're going to spend our time looking at that phrase and what follows in the rest of that verse next Sunday. So Sunday morning, uh, which is Christmas Eve, and then the Christmas Eve service that night, we're going to focus on that verse. So that's where we're headed next week. But this morning we return to Exodus and specifically to the story of the golden calf. This is a tragic incident in the history of Israel. And we find this story in Exodus chapter 32. And we can essentially divide that chapter into three parts. So you've heard me say this. I've I've mentioned this over the last few weeks. These haven't been the sermon titles, but if you're trying to conceptually put together the, the golden calf story in Exodus 32, I think we can divide that into three parts. Construction, conversation, and confrontation. Construction, conversation, and confrontation. During the 40 days and 40 nights when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites demand that Aaron construct a golden calf idol. And really what the people ask is, will will you make gods for us, gods that will go before us? And the golden calf encapsulates whatever it is they're understanding to be the deity or deities that they are worshiping. And I think it's murky, as I talked about before, and we'll talk about this a little while later. 
is that the idolatry, the nature of the idolatry of the, of the Israelites, I think, is multifaceted. I don't think they've had a religious council where they've sat around and they said, these are the propositional truths underlying the worship of the golden calf. Uh, they're simply lost in the craziness of this idolatry. So whatever they are worshiping, whomever they are worshiping, regardless of how many they are worshiping, they are worshiping this calf idol. And while this is happening, at the base of the mountain, God and Moses have a conversation at the top of the mountain. They have a conversation about what's going on down below. God proposes in his anger to destroy Israel and rebuild it through Moses. And we've talked about the anger of God. And you simply cannot understand the anger of God by by just merely looking at the analogy of human anger. To understand the anger of God, we have to understand God's truth. We have to understand God's character, his holiness, his justice, his rightness. Uh, and if you, if you read about some great atrocity or watch some documentary on the Holocaust or something of that sort, and you feel within you this righteous indignation, if I could get a hold of those people, if I could get a hold of those perpetrators, those evildoers. Now, we know that's always tainted with human sin, but there's that sense of righteous anger, that desire to make things right, that desire to vindicate that which ought to be vindicated. That is what is encapsulated in the notion of God's anger, God's wrath. And so God proposes in his anger to destroy the entire nation and rebuild it through Moses. Now, one of the questions that arises with the golden calf incident is how many people are really involved and to what extent is the whole nation involved? And I think that there are layers to that. We're not given all of those details, but the mere fact that the Lord tells Moses he will wipe out the nation and rebuild it through Moses implies to me that down below, the nation as a whole has gone after the golden calf. Certainly greater culpability among some. Certainly some maybe more passive in all of this. Some merely permitting it. Some on the margins. But I think what we are meant to understand, and even with the Levites we'll read about earlier, is that this is a collective thing that happens. This is a national failure. This is a national evil. But Moses as the mediator, intercedes for Israel by asking God to relent from his wrath and spare the nation. So what does he do? He appeals to God's plan and God's character. He appeals to what he knows about God. He doesn't appeal to anything in the Israelites, anything in their character, anything in their actions to mitigate God's anger or God's wrath. He appeals to God. He talks to God and he appeals to who God is. And God relents. God says, okay. God says he will not destroy the nation. This scene on the top of the mountain then transitions to confrontation as Moses goes down the mountain to the people. 
And last week, we started looking at this confrontation with a sermon entitled, Evil Confronted, Part 1. And last week, we looked at verses 15 to 24 as the first part of that. Moses breaks the tablets, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant, and he pulverizes the golden calf and makes the people drink it. He destroys the thing utterly. And as I talked about last week, this is the way of showing that the golden calf is nothing. Uh, You can imagine for those who had just bowed down to it, those who had just celebrated it, maybe sung some hymns to it, praised it, now they're watching Moses utterly crush it, pulverize it. He doesn't just break it down, he pulverizes it. He turns it into little specks of dust, and then he puts it in the water, makes the people drink it. It is utterly destroyed. Then Moses confronts his brother Aaron, who had been left in charge while Moses was on the mountain and who was responsible for actually fashioning the idol out of the golden earrings. And we talked about last week how when Aaron is confronted with this, he tells the facts of the story, but in a slightly different way. And as we talked about in Gospel Community Group this past week, he leaves out one very important verb, and he fashioned it. Uh, the, the picture that Aaron gives is that the people basically twisted his arm into this, brought their earrings to Aaron, he threw them in the fire, and then that was all that Aaron did. Out came the calf from the fire. Aaron had nothing to do with the calf. He only had something to do with the earrings. And that was merely a concession to the people in their evil. In other words, with Aaron's response, we have dodging, deflecting, and defending. And so the question is, does that sound at all familiar? And I'm not talking about what your spouse did or has done. I'm not talking about what your friend did or has done. Does that not sound familiar for each and every one of our own hearts? We deflect to others. We deflect blame to others. We dodge guilt We take the things that we do and we translate them into smaller things. And isn't it it interesting how we take the things that other people do and we translate those into bigger things? That's the speck in someone else's eye and the gigantic log in our own eye. We all do that. And the truth is that uh, the chances are great that we've all done that this very week. This is... The mark, one of the great marks of the sinner. And we see it at the very beginning. We see it in the garden with Adam, this dodging and deflecting and defending. So that's what Aaron does, but we ended last week with God's grace towards Aaron. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. So God is going to utterly pulverize Aaron. He's going to blast Aaron. He's going to take him off the earth. But then it says this, and I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. What are we going to go on to read in the Pentateuch? What are we going to go on to read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Aaron is going to become the high priest. This one who took uh, these earrings and built the golden calf, this one uh, who fashioned, yes, fashioned the golden calf, 
and even who put up an altar in front of it and led corporate worship unto or before this golden calf will become, despite his sin, the high priest. And isn't that our story? Here this morning as priests of God, that we're all priests of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We've all gone after the calf. And God in his grace towards us has made us his priests. This is the grace of God. The title for the sermon this morning is Evil Confronted Part 2. So if you would go and stand with me now as we read God's word together. So we're going to go back as we finish the story of the golden calf. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter. So this is the word of God. Listen closely to how this story unfolds. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of of the earth, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. From the disaster 
that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And then with verse 14, we pick up with the beginning of what we looked at last week with evil confronted. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And this is our passage for today. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. You can go ahead and be seated. So this is the story of the golden calf. And we come to the end of it today. Let's pray and ask for God's grace as we Look at what he has prepared for us here. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this gathering, this time together with your people. Lord, what grace. God, as I was thinking earlier this morning, um, everything that's happening right now was purchased at the cross. All of this worship, all of this, these moments, these graces, these little graces that we have your word in front of our eyes, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ sitting next to us. And uh, Lord, this is, this is all part of the package of your grace which you purchased through your Son at the cross. 
God, we praise you for this mercy, and we pray that we would be good stewards of this time, both in the preaching and in the hearing. We thank you for what you have for us here in these verses. We pray that the meaning of them would be clear and the impact of them would be seen in our lives by your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two parts to the sermon this morning. Uh, Two basic words that we find clearly here, the sword and the plague. This is evil confronted, the sword and the plague. Verses 25 to 29, the sword. Verses 30 to 35, the plague. So let's look first at the sword. And for that, I'm going to reread verses 25 to 29. By the way, this is not the point where you just sort of check out. This is where you really check in. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. It is hard to imagine what Moses must have thought as he came down the mountain. It's just really hard to even conceive of that. He has been up on the mountain with the living God. He has been in the presence of the Lord of all creation. The God who had so gloriously judged Egypt and parted the Red Sea The God who had done so much for Israel, this gloriously powerful, conquering God, and this gentle, gracious, loving God in one, in his presence. Not only that, but he had seen the plan of the tabernacle. The intricacies of the tabernacle had been before his eyes, every moment for 40 days and 40 nights. And we don't know to what extent he was preparing to get the instruction from the Lord. And if the Lord just gave to Moses audibly the tabernacle or if the Lord showed Moses the heavenly tabernacle or or the model itself, we don't know. But what we do know is that he had, at least in his own mind, seen the plan of the tabernacle. For the last 40 days, one theme had been flashing before his eyes. Holiness, holiness, holiness. His mind is consumed with holiness and God's glory. To go from that at the top of the mountain to all the sin and depravity and foolishness at the bottom of the mountain is just really hard to wrap our minds around. That kind of contrast, that kind of jarring transition from glory down to the depth 
of the pit. Here, we read that Moses makes one big observation. In the events that we've read about up to this point, Moses makes one big observation. The people had become wild. And, and this, this is really striking to us. I mean, this is, this is not the sort of, you know, well-orchestrated, like I said, no council, no governing body of, you know, golden calf priests. This, this is just absolute mayhem. This is just absolute insanity, what has happened at the base of the mountain. And by the way, let me just say this, sin breeds irrationality. Sin breeds insanity. Sin makes us mentally unstable. We know in our therapeutic culture that every form of instability is defined in therapeutic medical terms. And of course, we don't deny the fact that there are therapeutic and medical categories. But one of the things we need to recognize is that sin breeds mental and emotional instability. It breeds irrationality. It breeds all kinds of craziness. This is what we have going on at the bottom of the mountain. We have this wildness. There was a breaking loose that persisted, a wildness of behavior associated with the golden calf worship. As one commentator puts it, rebellion had degenerated into anarchy. And this wildness... Whatever it involved in the notion of rising up to play suggests sexual overtones going on, uh, but we don't know the extent of that. Whatever is involved in this wildness, it was even a stain on the people in the eyes of their enemies. That's what it says here, to the derision of their enemies. It was so unbecoming, so disorderly, so shameful that it brought nothing but shame on Israel as a nation. And here's the thing. It brought nothing but shame even to those who had similar religious practices. That's it. That's insane. That's just mind-blowing. That they are engaging in this worship and even the pagan Canaanites would look on this and say, whoa, what in the world is that? Derision of their enemies. Even the pagans would mock this. Even other idol worshipers would find reason to ridicule this people, this mass of folly. And this had happened on Aaron's watch. As the text says, Aaron had let them break loose. This has happened on his watch. And by the way, here's the thing we need to recognize. We believe in Satan He's a person, not a force, and we believe in demons. It's just hard to understand all that's going on at the bottom of the mountain. When we think about the spiritual realities at work down in the midst of all this idolatry. And I think that just reminds us, we open the door to Satan. We open the door to sin upon sin upon sin. When we do not repent of our sin, 
when we do not turn away from our sins, the Lord convicts our heart and we coddle our sin and we keep our sin and we let it persist, it leads to a wider and wider opening for Satan to take hold of our lives, our marriages, our families. This is precisely what happened to Cain in the very beginning of the Bible. God warned him, shut the door, Cain. Shut the door. But he didn't. He didn't shut the door. And it led to the murder of his own brother. The people have broken loose in wildness. So what we have here is a crisis on top of a crisis. We need to see that. That's important for us interpreting this well. We have a crisis on top of a crisis. Moses' response to the initial crisis had not ended the evil. The initial crisis being the idolatry itself. The forming and the worshiping of the golden calf. Moses' previous response had not ended the evil of the people. It was continuing. And a decisive action is needed. So Moses, as the true leader of the people, takes a stand. And he issues a call. We read that in verse 26. Look there with me. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Moses' language here leads me to believe that the people were not merely using the calf to depict Yahweh, as some have argued. This is one of the debates with the golden calf incident. Uh, some argue, and this may be totally irrelevant to you, you may not be concerned about it, but in terms of commentators, this is one of the great debates, is did the people break the first commandment or the second commandment? In other words, did the people replace God with other gods, with foreign gods, or did they simply make an image of Yahweh and, and break the second commandment only, that they were worshiping Yahweh, but they were worshiping him through this image? And one of the things that, one of the points that I made is that I think it's, it's too murky to tell. It's the, the messiness of idolatry, as I said a few weeks ago, that this is not neat. This is wild. This is not something that you can put into boxes. But the language that Moses uses here suggests to me that the people have, in fact, replaced Yahweh. Some of them, and we know this is the case for Aaron, are directing this to Yahweh through the calf. But Moses here does not say, all who are with true, invisible Yahweh, who cannot be depicted in an idol. He says, if you are for Yahweh, come. Yahweh, in contrast to whatever else it is that the people have been worshiping. So here, Moses calls them back to Yahweh. And there is one group of people that shows up in mass number, and it is the Levites. This is the tribe of Moses and Aaron. So Moses gives them an order. And it's important to see that this is not Moses' order. This is one of the questions that came up a couple of weeks ago as I was talking with some folks, is you know, that Moses gives this order to do this out of his anger. And what we see here in the language is that's not the case. This comes directly from the Lord. And we read that in verse 27. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, 
and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. So what do we read? The Levites obey, and 3,000 men of the people die. Moses commends their devotion and sacrifice and interprets it as a functional ordination or a setting apart of the Levites for God's service. And we read that in verse 29. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. In other words, this event functions to set the Levites apart. And we know that the Levites will be responsible for guarding, as it were, the holiness of God. They, they will be responsible for guarding and caring for all the holy objects associated with the tabernacle. And this event serves God's providential purpose of setting them apart for this role functionally. So, let's take a step back. What are we to make of this story, this particular incident. It is troubling. It is intense. It is violent. And if you were there watching it, you would realize how violent it would have been. It involves family members killing one another. What are we to make of this? It disturbs us and it simply does not mesh well with our natural God-given sentiments. And, and so some uh, liberal-minded Christians will, say, will look at a story like this and see, see, you know, this is just an aspect of ancient Near Eastern barbarism. We've, we've moved a long way from that. This is just an example of how the Scriptures really are very human books and, and, and sort of we've evolved, we've become more civilized and so on and so forth. And so this is just, you know, this is just another example of the way in which the, uh, the books of the Bible are just merely human books. Well, I think there's a few observations that we need to make as we consider this troubling account. So here they are. First, it must be viewed as a stoppage or a preventative. That is precisely in the context what this is. Moses is taking action because everything has gone mad. The situation is crazy. It's wild. It's just hanging loose in the breeze. Everything has been turned upside down. And so Moses, as the decisive leader, is saying, this must stop. And let me say this, God as the decisive leader of Moses commands that this be done in order that what is happening be stopped. So we have to situate it in its context. Second, it seems targeted at those most responsible for the golden calf incident. And I think there's three clues for that. First, the relatively small number of 3,000 suggests that this is not indiscriminate killing. If you just read this on the surface, you may get the impression that here go the Levites. They're going from gate to gate, back to the same gate, and they are literally just swinging at people, just hacking people right and left. That, that may be the impression that you get here, but the context does not bear that out. The fact that only 3,000 are killed suggests that this is targeted, not indiscriminate killing of the people. 
the drinking that we read about last week may identify the leaders, as we talked about the analogy with the adulterous woman, that the drinking of the water could bring a curse that shows up in the bodies of those who have led this entire thing and who are continuing it. A third clue is that the call to come to Yahweh suggests that some refuse. This is not just passivity or riding the fence. We know that the people as a whole are incredibly unstable at this point, but there may be those in the camp who are particularly adamant that the whole Moses thing and the whole Yahweh thing is of the past. They've moved on to something else. And the practices associated with this idolatry, they are continuing and encouraging others to continue as well. These are the Yahweh refusers. So I think we need to kind of put this in its context to understand what is happening. Third, and this is significant, given that there are over 600,000 men in the camp, this is an incredibly small number. You might read this on the surface, that 3,000 people just hacked down by the sword. This is an incredibly small number. In fact, it is less than half a percent of the men. Far less than one percent. Less than half a percent of the men in the camp. Considering that there is mass culpability and that God was going to destroy all of them, this is an incredible act of God's grace. And that's something that you may not consider as you read this on the surface. God was going to destroy the entire nation. 3,000 men who are perpetrators of this, it seems from the context, ringleaders you might say, are struck down. Seen from the angle Seen from that angle, this is an incredible act of God's grace. And I think it just reminds us that the golden calf incident is filled with theology of who God is as a God of judgment and a God of salvation. We see that all through this story. We see aspects of God's judgment and we see aspects of God's salvation. We see his wrath and we see his grace. You know, the two great Christian holidays put these before us as well as we think about Christmas and Easter. And you might be tempted to think that Christmas is just all about salvation. Christmas is just all about grace. But the one thing we need to remember is that this baby was born to bear sin. This baby was born to be an atonement for sinners. This baby is is on death row, as it were, waiting to grow up so that he might be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means that even at Christmas, we see God's wrath. Even at Christmas, we see God's judgment. As we fast forward to Easter, as we fast forward to Good Friday, and we see the cross. So let me just ask, do these two things hold together in your theology? As you think about the God of the Bible, do you see him in the way that he is depicted in the golden calf story? Do you see him in the way he is depicted supremely at the cross? Do you see his wrath? Do you take that seriously? Do you see his grace? And do you take that seriously? 
You know, Martin Luther could only see his wrath, and then he came to discover his grace. Some in our culture today seem to only see his grace, or grace so-called. They have no category for his wrath, no category for judgment, no category for hell, no category for God's holiness. Both of these hang together sweetly in this story. Fourth, there is no escaping the principle here that God comes before family. That God comes even before family. We see the Levites. They go out in devotion to Yahweh as their supreme object of devotion. Their love for Yahweh, their devotion to Yahweh transcends and even in some cases trumps their love for their own kin, their love for members of their own family. This points forward to what Jesus will say about those who would come to follow him. Listen closely to these words, Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus came to bring peace and unity. Well, yes, and this. I came to bring division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Because some will come to faith in Christ. And in this Jewish context in particular, the earliest followers of Jesus, some will not become followers of Christ. And those who are not followers of Christ will say about those who are followers of Christ, they must die. We see that with the Apostle Paul as he drags Christians, kills Christians, as he hunts Christians before he is converted. We also read this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you read that and you say, what is this, some kind of weird cult? No. That is one of the marks of cults as they separate people from their families. They separate people from their families and then they indoctrinate them with all kinds of craziness and bogus doctrine and they become isolated. And then the cult becomes their new family. One of the great marks of these heinous cults that we've seen over the years. This is not the case. What Jesus is saying is that when you come to know Jesus, he becomes number one, period. No one is on his level. We tell our children, we love you, but we love Jesus more than we love anybody. I love my wife. But Jesus is number one. She loves me, but Jesus is number one. He's number one. No one can compete with the Lord. Our devotion to him comes even before family. And so let me say this to you. What what does that mean for you? It certainly doesn't mean what we have in this story. This is rooted in a time and place. But what does that mean for you? That, that God comes before your family. What, is that, what does that mean practically? What does that mean on the ground in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment decisions of life? 
In what ways, perhaps, is your family leading you away from the Lord even? And you've chosen, as Adam did, to listen to the voice of your wife rather than the voice of the Lord. There's all kinds of ways that this shows up on the ground. The principle here stands clear. God comes even before family. So we've looked at the sword and now we come to the plague. Look at verses 30 to 35 as we finish up this morning. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Here, Moses returns to the language he had used with Aaron. He calls the golden calf incident a great sin. As I said last week, this is the language of adultery in the ancient world. Israel is like a bride who has cheated on her husband, has committed adultery against Yahweh. So Moses confronts. He confronts the people with what they have done, and he tells them that he will approach the Lord again to see what he can do to make atonement for the people and their sin. So why this language of atonement? Well, this is the idea that Moses has grown accustomed to on the mountain as he has heard God describe the tabernacle. If there is one theme that flashes most in the tabernacle portion, it is holiness. If there's another theme that flashes right next to it, right under it, it is atonement. Because God is holy and we are not, we need atonement. The bridging of the gap, the reconciling of sinners with God, the need for forgiveness and covering before God's face. Because holiness is important, atonement is important. So he tells the Israelites that he will approach God to see what he can do. And at this point, you might be thinking, well, what can Moses do? Is he going to offer a sacrifice? You know, we don't have the tabernacle yet. Is he going to offer a sacrifice or request that an altar be built so that he can act as the high priest and make a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice and sprinkle some blood? Well, interestingly, none of that is in view here. We don't don't find any of that. We don't find any reference to sacrifices or altars or blood or any of that. Instead, What is in view is Moses' comments to God about himself. And here's what he says. Look at verses 31 to 32. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So what's happening here? This is the mediator. The mediator putting himself on the line for the people. Moses is innocent with regard to the golden calf at least. But here he asks that he be treated as guilty for the people. 
Or another way to put it is that he asked that, the, that his innocence be tied up with the people. If they go, then he goes. As the people go, so Moses goes. And it is interesting that this is very similar to what we read of Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. And I can remember when we came to this, uh, this was hard for people to read what Paul says in Romans 9, 3. It's difficult to wrap our minds about, uh, around what Paul says in this verse. But here's what he says. For I could wish, in light of the mass rejection of Christ by Israel, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I would sacrifice my own self for the people. We have a similar idea going on here with Moses, that, that he would put himself on the line for the people. And of course, we know what all of this points in Moses' case forward to, and in Paul's case backwards to, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true mediator, the one true substitute who, though he was sinless, offered himself up for the people. So we read this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one put in place of the sinful ones in order that the sinful ones might become righteous. Hebrews 9.14, he offered himself without blemish to God. John 10.11, he laid down his life for his sheep. This is the Christ of Christmas. When you think of Jesus, let me say this. This is, this is really, really important for our relationship with Christ. People talk about, I hear this language get thrown around, I'm a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's wonderful language, it's true. That's what we ought to pursue. But it gets thrown around so much that you start to wonder to what extent it really is based on who Jesus is and the theology of the Bible, laying out the biblical Christ. Because we know we could easily replace the biblical Christ with an imaginary friend, just like kids do. We could easily replace the biblical Christ with a, some sort of idol, which is a fabric of our own imagination that we sort of are buddies with, there for us when, in times of need, and makes us feel good. That is the crutch of Freud. That is the opiate of the masses that we read about from Karl Marx. This is the sort of thing that we're not interested in. We're interested in the real Jesus, the real Jesus who lives the real Jesus who is with us. This is the Christ of Christmas. He is the penal substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Do you see Jesus that way? When you think of this Christ that you love, this Christ whom you pray to, this Christ whom you serve, do you think in your mind consciously, Jesus is the substitute for my sin? He died in my place. Not just my bud, but the one who died in my place. The gravity of that. This is our mediator. And Moses here points us to that Christ. It is interesting here that Moses refers to a book. This is the picture of God having a book of citizens blot 
blotting out of the book. God is the king and his citizens are written in his book. This is the book of life. To be blotted out of this book is to no longer belong to the king. Imagine that. It, you, you go up to the list. Am I a citizen of this kingdom? You go up to the list and you look and you, oh, I'm on the list. You remember in middle school maybe trying out for a sports team. And at the very end, they put up the list. Did you make the team? You go and you look. I, ah, I'm on the list. There is a book, metaphorically speaking and angelically speaking. I, we, don't, we don't know what this entails. But it's this image of are you in the book or are you not in the book? This terrified me as a kid. I remember hearing preachers, you know, would come in and fiery revivalists would come in uh, and, and they would give sermons and, and they would talk about the Lamb's book of life. Being in the book. Whew. Terrifying to think my name may not be in the book. Let me ask you this question. Is your name in the book? Is your name written in the book of life? This idea of being written in God's book fills us with gratitude, but also sober-mindedness. We read this in Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, yeah, I know that you think it's great that you can cast out demons, but here's what you need to rejoice about, that your name is written in God's book. That's what we should be happy about. Not an experience in life, not some comfort, not some petty little pleasure, but the fact that my name is in God's book, that God has written my name in heaven, that I belong to the King. Revelation 20, verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not just not being on the team. It's being lost forever. Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me just say to you kids, is your name written in God's book? Repent of your sin while you're little. Trust in Christ. And have your name, by God's grace, written in God's book. God's response to Moses is that he will judge. He will punish. But Moses is not able to stand in the gap. There's only one who is able to stand in the gap, and that is the future Messiah. That is the future Christ. He will stand in the gap. He will have, as it were, himself blotted so that we get to be written in it. Because here's the thing. There's only one name in the book. At the end of the day, there's only one name in the book. That's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He's the only name in the book. And then all of our names imported through Christ into that book. Jesus endured hell, the likes of which we'll never see, because he is our great mediator. Moses will lead the people on, and God's angel will go before him. Each one will bear his own guilt. 
God will do some blotting, but he will do it based on his own knowledge of who is responsible. We're not given details about who God affects with this plague, but we are told that from an earthly perspective, God will carry out punishment through a plague. And, and this brings us back to Egypt. In other words, God will treat these calf worshipers in the way he does in his wisdom, according to personal responsibility before his face, he will treat them like Egyptians. You've acted like Egyptians, I'll treat you like Egyptians. You've given yourself over to the gods of Egypt, then I will place on you the plagues that I placed on Egypt. No details are given, but one thing we recognize is that a plague is a far cry from total annihilation, a far cry. And once again, this highlights God's glorious grace. This is a God who punishes sin, and we'll see this when God reveals his name to Moses. This is a God who holds sinners responsible. He punishes sinners, but this is a God who saves sinners as well. In his electing grace, according to his own power, his own mercy to sinners, he has saved some for the eternal praises of his grace because of this glorious grace. And we see it all throughout the Bible, even in the golden calf incident. And that shouldn't surprise us because consider how much we see God's grace in the fall. Even in Genesis 3, we see that God doesn't just obliterate Adam and Eve. He makes a covering for them. He sends them out and he provides for them and their descendants. God is a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he is also a God who is holy and just and will punish sinners and all who do not repent of sin and trust in Christ, he will punish forever in hell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your character and who you reveal yourself to be. Lord, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace. We thank you, God, that you are so compassionate, so loving to sinners like us, Lord. You see us in the pit and you reach down with, even with the, sac the sacrifice and the suffering of your son, you reach down and pull us from the pit and you exalt us to the highest heavens. Lord, just as we read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, uh, the, the passage begins with us being absolutely cold, dead, just depraved and going after evil, children of wrath. And then as Adam prayed earlier, on the other side of the but God, we get being exalted and seated with Christ. Lord, how, how unfathomable is this grace which you have given us through Jesus. Lord, would we be true celebrate? celebrants of Christmas this year, would we really focus on this wondrous gospel? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.